Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to this edition of Sound Advice Podcast. My name is Steve Jones, and today I'm joined by Mark Skellum, who's a partner here at Ballard's LP and heads up the corporate healthcare offering here at the firm. And also have a special guest with us today, Nils Christensen. Nils is the managing partner and co-founder of DR Solicitors, which is a legal advisor to and works exclusively in the primary care sector. Um, Hi, Mark. Hi, Nils. Hi. Hi there. Hi, Steve. So it's a bit of a, a specialist uh, topic that we wanted to cover off. I'm going to hand, Mark, I'm going to hand straight over to you here. Do you, do you want to sort of just give us a quick overview? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I guess, I, I guess this is a, this is a particular area where there's been quite a lot of noise and quite a lot of complication, quite frankly, over the last few months and so around whether certain bodies of GPs need to register a trust for various um, uh, arrangements they may have in place, particularly really around properties and, and shares and bank accounts and what have you. So it, it is somewhat complex. Um, so um, what we're going to do is we'll chat those through with Niels. I think what we'll do actually is leave properties to the end. We'll cover the first two off first. Properties is the bigger area. Um, it is the more complex area. Uh, it takes a little bit longer just to just to get the uh, just to get some information out of it. And we'll we'll save that best save that best bit till the end of the uh, the podcast. But um, if we start off with the shares, Niels, do you want to just take us through what the uh, what the guidance is then around the shares? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and thanks, Mark. I, I think just taking a little bit of a step back as to why is this suddenly an issue? This is an issue because um, the change in the law, trust registration has been around for a while, um, but the, the change in the law was broadening the the base of, of, of trust which would need registration. So basically it moved beyond uh, trust which are just there for the, had, had tax implications to a wider set of trusts. And, and the thing is that in primary care, there are an awful lot of trust relationships. Why is that? That is because um, because most of primary care is in a partnership and partnerships are not legal entities and not able to hold things on their own account. And um, as a result, the, the their assets are held by others. Um, and what the legal term for that is, is a trust relationship. The person who's holding the asset um, holds it on behalf of others. So very, very common in, in, in primary care because primary care is uh, largely a is largely partnerships, 1890 partnerships. So shares are a classic example. Shares are in the name of somebody, a person who owns, if you like, that share. Um, but in primary care, most of the shares you're looking at are actually shares that, that the partnership wants to hold. The most obvious two um, are historically GP federations, the share for the GP federation. Um, and more recently, if you incorporate your PCN, then a share for um, the, com- the PCN company. And there may be others, but those are the most obvious two. Now, what you will want to achieve is that the share is owned by the partnership so that partners, as they come and go, are um, have, have an interest in that share. And indeed, if there should ever be any dividend paid out, that happy day when you get some income on, on the share, you would want that to go into the partnership pot and get divided up amongst the partners, almost certainly in their partnership share. So what happens there is normally, because the partnership can't hold the share in its own name, it's not an entity, you would normally ask one of the partners 
to hold the share in their name as a nominee on behalf of the partnership. Now, historically, we would have documented that in, a part, in the partnership agreement and just say, well, that's what it is. And that's fine. And you would continue to do that. But the trust registration rules have broadened it out and said, well, that's a trust. That as a starting point is registrable. Now, that's where everybody got to and the, the panic set in and suddenly, oh, my gosh, there's a lot to do here. The question is that there is actually some there are some exemptions and that was the good news. The good news is there are certain exemptions and the, the primary exemption of use for or of use for, for primary care is what we call the public authority exemption. So if the asset, if its primary purpose is to the benefit and the, 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 is to assist a public authority in the delivery of its public authority responsibilities, then there is an exemption. So the question is, is primary care a public authority? And the answer to that is that GMS and PMS practices are public authorities. Um, so, so long as the asset, in this case, the share, is part of the delivery of the GMS uh, or PMS services, then there's an exemption. Now, PCNs are um, very clearly part of your GMS services because they're just an enhanced service. So if the share relates to a something like a primary care network, then yes, that would be exempt. So don't worry about that. Document that in all the relation. Still, still needs documenting, but don't worry about trust registration. GP federations, slightly more, slightly, slightly questionable around that because you'd have to look at what does the GP federation actually do? Is it doing stuff which is helping the GMS and PMS practices deliver their services? In which case, fine, don't worry about it. If, on the other hand, it is not, it's doing something completely different, perhaps doing its own thing, the federation, then that would be something which would need registering. So PCN companies normally don't worry about it. Federations, you have to look a little bit closer to see what does the federation actually do. Just a, the, back to the, 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 the exemption, though. The exemption, I was very careful saying who's exempt. GMS and PMS practices are exempt. So, so long as the, 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 the trust benefits the services delivered by the GMS, PMS practices, like a PCN company would, then that's fine. Um, but APMS is slightly different. APMS is not a public authority. So APMS um, doesn't can't benefit from that exemption. Um, if you look at it in the whole, PCN is probably not an issue, but um, you know, again, federations maybe. Okay, so, so in federations are potentially something that could be registrable depending on what they, uh, what the federations are actually doing, um, and even if you've got a, a federation which is there to sort of support the GMS and therefore would fill into the sort of the, fall into the non-registrable area there's still something just to take away which is just to make sure you've got some documentation in place around why who's owning the share for who anyway even though it's not registrable as a trust it still needs to have the right documentation in place um, totally. Ar totally around that arrangement and, and sometimes that it, it's strange actually sometimes that doesn't happen as you might expect because maybe the the shareholder changes over time and it's not updated in in the right uh, in the right register um or potentially um it should really be in the partnership agreement as you said earlier and actually the partnership agreements aren't updated them really as often as they should be i don't think are they so um Okay, I think, yeah, so that you're, you're absolutely right, and it's one of the big concerns always around primary care, isn't it? Of of because there's so many trust relationships there, 
things people don't really think about changing the names. So the share that yeah. have people thought about changing names. The number of times you come across GP Federation has now been around a long time. How many GP Federations actually have got shares in the right places, in the right names? And I think my experience, very few. It's quite a big job actually keeping track of it actually for the federations as well, for the sizable ones. Okay, great. So that's that's the shares. Um, uh, so the, the other one that we mentioned was around bank accounts, wasn't it? And just uh, holding bank accounts. Indeed. So historically, bank accounts weren't a problem because the bank account would be in the name of the partnership um, because banks are able to do that. And that was fine. Never need to worry about bank accounts. The day you had to start worrying about bank accounts, of course, was when PCNs arrived um, because the PCN nominated payee um, is, is, is is shared account. Now, if if you use a, a, a pure nominated payee account, it may be okay. But in reality, the vast majority of that PCN money is held on trust for all of the practices because it doesn't belong to the nominated payee normally. It normally belongs to all of the practices collectively. So that bank account is almost certainly going to be in the name of somebody a nominated payee or something because it can't be in the name of the pcn because that doesn't exist so therefore whoever's got that bank account in their name and it's usually a nominated pay uh, a nominated practice they are holding that money on trust for the others so in principle that is yet again a trust relationship um and needs to be documented in that case in the pcn agreement ideally to say what's going on and to specify it's a trust relationship etc Good news, though, of course, it can benefit from the same public authority exemption. And I think it's beyond doubt that the PCN is there for the benefit of the public authority because it's part of the GMS contract. So so the, the long and short of that is that those bank accounts, those PCN bank accounts, yes, they're trusts and could be could be registrable, but they have an exemption. So it's okay. not really a big issue. So good, so good news on that. But again, I'll, I'll sort of pick up on one of the things you said, said there around the documentation anyway. And, and you know, there is, I do have this, this odd worry that there's still the odd PCN out there, which is using a bank account, which is almost like a number two bank account for an existing practice. And, and the documentation really does need to be there just to prove who, what that bank account's for and, and, and sort of how it's being operated, doesn't it? So, um, so that's good. Uh, around that. So that leads us on to our main event then, doesn't it? Onto properties. Um, um, I'll maybe clear the floor for you at this point. So, uh, Nils, uh, do you want to just take us through the property angle? Yeah, properties are more complicated um, because largely because there's more variation in them. Um, so, you know, a share is a share and a bank account is a bank account. But properties can be leased, they can be owned, they can be in the partnership, they can be outside the partnership, people have them as SIPs, you know, all sorts of shapes and variations of what you've got there. Um, in essence, you have to start with asking yourself, who owns the building? And that is not actually as obvious, a uh, the answer isn't as obvious as you think, because um, the many, most buildings in primary care are actually partnership assets. They're held um, by the partnership. But most people in primary care don't think about it like that. They think about it as being my asset. I'm the owner or me and my three partners are the owners of the building. Um, and often that isn't strictly the legal position. Often it's actually a partnership asset. Now, there are good reasons for it to be a partnership asset because there's lots of 
tax benefits and other benefits of having it as a partnership asset. And I'm sure, Mark, you're, you're, I know you're nodding, and I'm sure you could you could explain many of those in uh, at another time. So there are benefits in doing that, and most therefore, as a result, most properties are. But if it's held as a partnership asset, it's not in the name of the partnership. It's in the name of whoever's name is on the title. And whoever's name is on the title in that situation is a, is a trustee. They're actually holding it on behalf of the partnership, even, even if the same people are named on, on the title who are partners. So let's say there's three partners. They all have a share in the building. If it's a partnership asset, even though they've got their their names on the on the um, on the freehold at land registry, it's actually they're holding it on trust in that case for themselves. But nonetheless, they're holding it on trust. So if the building is a partnership asset, there is definitely a trust relationship between the people named at the land registry on the freehold title or the leasehold title and the partners in the partnership. So if that's the case, then you fall back on, you start looking at the exemption again and saying, well, in that case, is this building there for the purpose of a public authority? And the good news, of course, is that the vast majority of them are because the building's only job is to help deliver GMS or PMS services. So so long as you're a GMS or a PMS practice, and so long as the, the building's a partnership asset, and so long as its primary purpose is that, and actually you haven't got a GMS practice in some 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 room at one end, but actually this this thing's really about about the flats above, and you're running a property letting business. You know those scenarios are unusual, so the vast majority of them are going to be exempt in that situation. So that's a good news as a starter, isn't it? I always like to start with good news, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, indeed. So. For, for most people, it's not going to be a problem. And the same is going to be true of leases because um, most, although leases will be registered there, most of them actually are, are, are the partnership is the one who is the, the real tenant in there, regardless of whose names are at the land registry. So usually leasehold properties are, are more straightforward. So the the more tricky situations start coming in when you've got, freeholds which aren't wholly um, partnership assets and unfortunately that's becoming more and more common because um, people can be they might put put it in a sip we're dealing with um, a number at the moment where some or all of the of the property is in it is in is in a sip uh, from one or more of the partners or more commonly a partner or partners retire and keep a share in the in the property um, and so over time, these properties can move out of the partnership and become non-partnership assets. And it's not always immediately obvious whether they are or aren't partnership assets. Um, but the moment they move out of the partnership, then suddenly the trust relationship changes, if it exists at all. Because a trust relationship is going to, is only if you are holding it on behalf of others. So if the building entirely moves out of the out of the partnership, then almost it's probably going to be in the name of the owners, in which case that's fine. There's no trust relationship because the owners and the names at the time the, the land registry are the, are the are the same. 
If, on the other hand, there are retired partners and the thing's still partly in the in the partnership, it starts to become questionable as to whether or not the you know who's it actually being held on trust for. Is it on health trust partnership or not? Probably you'll be okay there. But then you have another scenario, which is that um, you may be familiar with it, the land registry, there's a limit on the number of um, names you can have. So it goes back to some ancient law um, that you can only have four names on the land registry. Now, for surgeries, that can be quite tricky because often they're owned by more than four people. So then you've got the question of, well, the names at the land registry, um, are they the same people? Are they all the owners of the building? Because if they're not, you've got another trust relationship. So let's say you've got four names at the land registry and there are five owners, even though it's not a partnership asset. You've then got a trust relationship between those four and the fifth owner, who's a, what we call a has a, a beneficial interest in it. And so as a starting point, that's a registrable trust. So even though it's not a partnership asset, because you haven't got all the names at the land registry, it becomes registrable. The good news, though, again, I like the good news, Mark. The good news, the good news is that there is an exemption for that as well. And the exemption for that is if you are by law prevented, if the trust exists as a result of legislation, then that gives an exemption. And because of the, 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 the limits to the number of people on the, um, on the land registry is four, that is a, a legislative restriction, and therefore that 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 means that you can exemption for that. But you've got to be careful because what typically happens in with GP GP surgeries is the names at the land registry are not necessarily the same people, or indeed you don't necessarily put four four names down. So one scenario would be well, it's five owners. But there's three names on the land registry because you never you can't get all five on anyway. Well, if that's the case, then you have to register the trust because you haven't got you're not you haven't not registered because you run out of names. Um, so always use all four and also make sure that the four names there are real, real beneficial owners and not trustees. Otherwise, you end up doing it. So it gets quite complicated. But the starting point is there's two exemptions you can use. The first one is the public authority exemption for GMS and PMS practices. And most buildings will have exemptions as a result of that. So that's good news, um, particularly if they're partnership assets. If they're not partnership assets, make sure that the names at the land registry are the same as the beneficial owners and that you use, if there are more than four names there, you use all four names at the land registry and then you can use the other exemption. So with those, with those two exemptions, we should see the, the majority of property owning arrangements being carved out of this legislation in, in many, well, carved out is the wrong word, but you, it's excluded because of those exemptions, yeah? Exactly. You've just got to be careful. And, you know, it really goes back to what you were saying earlier on, Mark, about documentation. Around all of these things, so long as you get your documentation sorted out properly and it's it's done well, then actually you won't need to worry about the trust registration. It's usually where it hasn't been done too well that you could put start full foul, falling foul of the trust. But I suppose if you might say, well, if you haven't got your document, the rest of your documentation in order, then maybe you won't realise you've got a trust problem. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah, if your documentation is not there in the first place, then that's probably uh, you've got bigger problems as well, haven't you? Um, to, to, to worry about. Okay. Um, well, that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty. Well, let's be, let's be clear. It's pretty complicated, isn't it? But thankfully, those exemptions are there, um, yeah. and I think that's that's clearly a benefit to um, a number of the clients that we've been having a look at and, and sort of trying to figure out whether there's a trust relationship there. I suppose what might be just useful as a final pointer. Um, so let's assume that for whatever reason we say right there is a trust relationship whether that's for properties for shares for um for, for bank accounts or what have you let's say relationship is there and we've got to register it well, what does that what does that what does that mean and what does that entail <laughs> yeah it's pretty horrible isn't it the, the the first thing to say is whose job is it whose whose problem is it the problem is the trust is the trustee it's the trustee's problem um being a trustee comes with comes with a variety of of obligations, um, and so if your name is on that bank account, or if your name is on that share, or if your name is reg is on the land registry for that property, you're the one who has to deal with this because you're the trustee. Um, so the trustee has obligations to to inform HMRC and to register the the, the trust, um, and then the, the obligations are to make sure that the trust stays current. Um, and there's a bunch of information that you need to register. Um, most importantly, you know, what's the trust for and who are the beneficiaries? Um, so who are the beneficiaries of that trust? Now, with property, who the beneficiaries are is probably relatively easy because you're going to know who owns that building. But imagine that um, you, if you, for example, you had to register a PCN bank account. Now, I don't think you're going to have to do that. But if you did, the beneficiaries are all of the partners in all of the practices in that PCN. And do you, as the trustee who happened to, <laughs> happened to agree to put your name on that bank account, even know the answer to that? And are you staying current? Because every 12 months, you've got to send a note to HMRC telling them, yep, this is still the, the beneficiaries. I understand who it is. This is all their details, etc." So it's it, it can be a bit onerous, to be honest, to get caught up in it, particularly for the more complex trusts like the the, the bank accounts and the shares. Fortunately, they make the more complex ones are probably exempt. But if you can avoid it, then I would recommend you do so. Um, and I, I do think that most people can avoid it. Fine. Okay. No, that's really useful. Um, thank you very much for that, Neil. So appreciate that. I know this is a fairly whistle-stop tour of the topic, and we could we could carry on. I think we had a we had a chat for a good hour or so, didn't we? As a sort of a bit of prep for this, and sort of testing what if scenarios. But we haven't really got too much time for that here. But so, um, thank you, Niels, for your time. Appreciate that. Um, and I suppose, I suppose on that, um, would it be useful um, to just give out some some quick contact details in case yeah. any of the listeners want to to come back to you, Niels? People can contact you on. Yep, they certainly welcome to contact us to DR Solicitors 01483 511555. Uh, repeat that 01483 511555, or my email address is n.christiansen uh, at drsolicitors.com or info at drsolicitors.com. So, very happy to, to answer any queries on that or indeed any other matters, primary care, uh, legal. And people can find your details uh, online as well, Niels, can't they? Just by just by googling um, the solicitors. So, and and Mark, um, as always, you, you are uh, on um, Mark dot Skellum at Ballard's LLP dot com uh, and 7904 or also contact details are online. 
Um, Nils, Mark, thanks for bringing some clarity to to you know quite a challenging topic. And um, if anyone wants to get any further information, feel free to get in contact with either Mark or Nils. Mark, Nils, thank you very much for your time. That's great, thank you. Thank you.